Hello, everybody, and welcome to what seems to be a holiday special episode of the Fire Science Show. And the episode is definitely special because it seems to be one of the most requested interviews to be done on the podcast. So I'm super happy I, I finally arranged that. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Dr. Kevin McGratton from NIST, who is better known as the creator of FDS, Fire Dynamic Simulator, a tool that I guess every fire engineer in their career has used at least once. That's my belief, maybe not true, but I think everyone of us has used, and I, I guess I could just uh, stop the introduction at this point and just jump into the interview, but uh, I still have some stuff to, to tell you before we do that. So I'm super excited, not only because of the fantastic guest I'm having today, but also because the podcast has just reached another milestone that is 50,000 individual podcast listens. Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm super happy to be a part of your professional life. And I'm super grateful that you choose to spend your time with the Fire Science Show. And it has been a challenging journey to reach this point. But today that the podcast is better than ever before, I have all the things set up in place, all the automations set up in place, all the routine going. It's, it's a pure pleasure to create a podcast nowadays. I get to interview magnificent people. I get to share it with you. I get to interact with my audience. I'm talking to you through my newsletter. If you haven't signed up for that, uh, you can through the website. And I try to use more and more ways to listen to you more and uh, produce the show that you want. Uh, so I hope there's some good times ahead for the podcast. I'm very sure about that. And yeah, early next year, some more interesting and, and big updates coming your way. But for now, let's let's focus on what's here now. And uh, what's here now is, is a great episode of the show where you will learn a lot of stuff, where FDS came from, what was the rationale behind building this uh, set of tools, how did the landscape look when Kevin did build it up, how did the team look up in the early days, how did the solver look up in the early days? Oh man, it's, it's so fantastic uh, to discover the fairly recent but very important part of the history of, of the fire science. And I would also like to encourage you, if you have some great memories from the early days of FDS development, I don't know if you used version 1, 2, 3, 4, or 5, or started with version 6, doesn't matter. Share it with others. Let's let's see how the path to using the model as it is today looked like, and uh, maybe we'll have some fun sharing and collecting experiences of the fire science audience. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I won't take more of your time because you're waiting to to hear Kevin. And you're right, you should. Thank you for being here with me, and now enjoy your episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello everybody, I'm here today with an episode everyone was asking for. I have invited Dr. Kevin McGratton from NIST. Hey Kevin. Hey, how are you? I'm super good. Thank you very much. And we are going to talk about fire dynamic simulator development. Man, that's a, that's a topic. <laughs> that's a tool. Many times I, I've said FDS is among maybe three best uh, or most impactful things that happen to fire science. I, I would put it on par with SFP handbook and, and oxygen calorimetry. 
I'm not sure <laughs> if that's where you would place it as well, but th there's not many things that would have such an impact over the, the whole discipline. So first of all, Kevin, uh, thank you so much for building and managing that you and uh, this team. That right. is amazing right. effort. Yep. <laughs> well, it's interesting and it is fun. You can uh, come to work every day and enjoy what you're doing. That's a plus. Yeah, for sure. That makes sense when you say that, because I don't know how you manage <laughs> all of this, uh, looking through the issue tracker and stuff like that. Uh, I, I don't know how much I would handle. Well, you know, one of the fun parts about the job is that every day there's something new. And sometimes it's some, some issue having to do with, you know, computer science, some, some fire that occurred somewhere that's of interest some little bit of science that I know very little about and I learn something about. I mean, every day there's something new. You just come in in the morning and you look at that issue tracker in the discussion group and I didn't know that. Okay, that's <laughs> what I'm going to be doing today. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. So, uh, Kevin, as far as I know, you're a mathematician. I am. How does a mathematician end up working in a fire laboratory? Right. Uh, so I studied mathematics in graduate school at New York University called the Courant Institute. And after I graduated, I found a postdoc position, a postdoctoral fellowship down here at, at NIST. And my advisor was named uh, Ron Rehm. And he was in the applied math lab. So I came down and I found out that Ron Rehm was uh, working with a fellow named Howard Baum. And Howard Baum was doing uh, fire model calculations. And so I started doing fire model calculations <laughs> after all. I was a postdoc. And I found it pretty interesting. When I was in graduate school, I worked on high-speed flow, you know, flow at supersonic speeds. Mm -hmm. And I came down here and completely turned the tables and started looking at low-speed flow. <laughs> yeah. Higher, higher in the realm of speeds is, is relatively low, low Mach number. <laughs> nice. And in fact, that's Ron and Howard really pioneered with this with this idea of the low Mach number approximation of the Navier-Stokes equations. Mm -hmm. So. That was a refreshing change for me because up to that point in my my education, I've been looking at shock waves and high-speed flow and now it's something completely different. So, um, you know, that's how, I, that's how I got into it. My other connection to fire, though, is that my uncle's name is Bernie McCaffrey. So those of you who are familiar with fire science would, would recognize the name McCaffrey. Um, he did a lot of work, experimental work with bloom correlations. He developed bidirectional probe or one type of bidirectional probe. And so just by coincidence, you know, he is my mother's brother. <laughs> and I always, I always wondered what was fire science? I would go to my grandmother's house when I was growing up and she would have a, there was a picture of him from one of these meetings. And he won the, you know, the fire scientist of the year award or something. Like that. <laughs> what is fire science? Well, I got a good education when I came down uh, here to NIST after graduating from graduate school. So that's how I got started. There was no no other reason other than that just happened to be what my advisor was doing. So well, I, guess, I started doing it too. I guess, I guess uh, we should be grateful then. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Courant Institute, like the current number, huh? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That, that's nice. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Richard Karanak was a, a German mathematician who fled the Nazis in the 1930s. And he started up the program at New York University. And, you know, he and his other cohorts, you know, were famous for that Karanak number. So that's that's something that was uh, tattooed onto my brain when I was in <laughs> the importance of the Karanak number. Fantastic. And n now, 
when I was going through some files, I saw uh, in one of them that, that the FDS was in development since 1978. But I guess this would uh, trace back all trace the way back. to these uh, low Mach number whole approximation times. Yes, yes, exactly. When it became like reality that you are going to build a three-dimensional model that's uh, supposed to simulate fire environment, because I should actually ask, like, how, how did the playing field look at that point? That's the time of CFAS and stuff like that, right? Yeah, so what, what Ron and Howard were doing was, uh, was somewhat ahead of its time. And the whole concept of the low Mach number and their, and their approximation that they made to the equations, that was absolutely necessary because if you want to run these CFD calculations for long periods of time, I mean, like when we do fire simulations, sometimes we're simulating hours worth of time. Mm-hmm. You've got to make some approximations and not having to track these pressure waves as they bounce around your domain is a huge advantage. That's what allows us to, to run FDS relatively fast. Now, a lot of people do complain <laughs> that it takes forever to run your FDS calculation. But if you actually look at other D packages or other CFD techniques, it, it's actually relatively fast what we're doing. And a lot of it is, is due to the low lock number approximation. Ron and Howard actually had a background in meteorology. Ron went to MIT, uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and Howard went to Harvard. And they were working with uh, some of the pioneers of you know, meteorology and um, meteorological CFD. So a lot of the techniques that went into their model was borrowed from you know, the weather people, not the, not the people who are designing missiles and rockets. A lot of CFD at that time was all about shooting intercontinental ballistic missiles mm. and landing men on the moon and high-speed flow and all of that. But and you, and you need certain approximations in the equation to handle those kinds of flows. But uh, Ron and Howard looked to the meteorologists and they said, you know, what do we have here? We have buoyant thermal plume. So we're not talking about you know, rockets re-entering the Earth's atmosphere at, you know, Mach 10. Uh, we're talking about weekly buoyant thermal plumes, and that's, that's how the equation is developed. And the most uh, fundamental tool you would use at, for modeling at that time would be the zone model, I guess. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so can you tell me about the moment where you started to think that, okay, a zone model is great, but it would be greater to, to go 3D-dimensional and use yeah. these fancy tools? Uh, the... Right. So when I first started, working with Ron and Howard in the early 90s, we developed a couple of different pieces of software to handle different problems. So I worked with one group, and they were looking at big oil plume fires, big oil fires that created big plumes in the outdoors. And we're talking about tens of kilometers into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then I was working with another group, and we were doing these literal tiny fire spread calculations of flames in outer space. So we had some mark from NASA to look at the spread of fire on the space shuttle or the space station. So we were doing these tiny fundamental little flame spread calculations. Then I was just doing some simple buoyant plume calculations within simple compartments. So I had a whole series of different codes that I was working with. And I was kind of slamming these different algorithms together. Each one for each different application. And it's, that's not unusual. In CFD, oftentimes you find that someone takes a bunch of kind of bits and pieces, core solvers, if you will, mm-hmm. and puts them together for, for each application. Well, 
I found after a couple of years of this that I was getting stretched way too thin. So I had okay. early codes to keep care, take care of, and I needed to consolidate. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that, you know, I should be able to combine all these different bits and pieces into one code that can handle this range of different applications. And it's, that's a bit of a stretch going from these tiny little flames in outer space to, you know, gigantic oil fires. If you look at just the core solver, the Navier-Stokes equation, it's common to all of these things. In fact, I mean, all CFD codes at the end of the day have some kind of basic transport equations. And so I combined that all into one code. And then we started applying it to some applications that on our plate at the time. The, one of the first applications was we got involved with the NFPA Research Foundation, and they were looking at this issue that involved sprinklers, vents, and draft curtains in uh, warehouses. Okay. That was a bit of a controversy at that time. In the 90s, at least here in the United States, we started to see all of these, what we call big box stores. I don't know what you call it in Europe, but uh, mm-hmm. think like the IKEA yeah, warehouse, yeah. right? Okay, you know what that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was somewhat new in the 90s. And the new concept there was that we were combining, what would you want to call it? Like industrial fire protection with the type of life safety fire protection you would find in a small store. Okay, so now you basically have people in a large industrial facility. And so there was a lot of controversy as to, you know, how do we protect both property and life safety at the same Okay. So that's where this this problem of uh, sprinklers, vents, and draft curtains mm-hmm. came up. Because in these stores, you would have sprinklers, but then they also wanted to keep the vents and the draft curtains, which was a sort of an earlier technology. And to make a long story short, some people complain that these three uh, did not work well together. They, they still do, Kevin. They, that, that discussion has not yeah. ended Right, right. I, I find right. it interesting that you say um, it was multiple codes applied together. I I've heard different versions of this story said by different people. Like some people were saying, "Oh, there was this industrial fire yes. model uh, that that originated." Some were saying, "No, no, there was like aloft <laughs> for uh, external plumes. They they used aloft yep. first. And I, yep. I I see all of them have a bit of truth. And uh, the true truth is that. Uh, You were done with this, <laughs> with writing a separate model for every application. That's right. But, but That's right. Had, yeah. there was something called Aloft, which we use for these big oil plume fires. And um, then there was something called the Industrial Fire Simulator, IFF. And that's just typical of the way things were, where you would put together a special code for each special application. But it's a nightmare in terms of maintenance. Of course. It's, yeah. it's impossible. So I just, combined everything into into FDS, and it's been that way ever since. And it makes my life a lot easier to just practically track of one phone it's, and not three or four. It's, it sounds like the best investment in your life, I guess. <laughs> right. But there's also something, there's a bit of like sort of academic politics involved, and that is oftentimes people rename or rebrand yeah. research that they're doing because then it sounds like something new. Yeah, yeah. And, And even today, sometimes, you know, when I talk to my managers, they say, you know, this FDS thing, it's been great, but what's next? What are we doing next? <laughs> like, I don't know. We're just trying to make it better. <laughs> we're not necessarily going to rebrand it. Yeah. It's like iPhone. You can make FDS 6S now or, or, or something. Yes. 
Uh, now I need to ask you, like, when you were merging this model, you must have done some choices. And yes. now, 20 something years later, we're all uh, doomed with uh, with your choices. So right. I would love to I would love to understand, especially the, the first and most impactful one, I guess, uh, LES model. So uh, okay. for the listeners, FDS uh, works with turbulence model, the way how you model the turbulent part of the flow of, of the air called large eddy simulation, a Smagrinsky version of it. And I would say um, even today, if I if I was making a proposal to write a new code and said, and I would like to make it LES code, may, maybe today it would not be very odd. But 20, yes, 20, right. 20 some years ago, I guess that was that was a bold decision. Like, uh, can, can you tell me the background? Right. Well, well, remember I said that we had our start in meteorology. Yeah, okay. And Smagorowski was a meteorologist. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I believe. I think <laughs> a Google search on it, but I believe Smagorowski <laughs> was was developing algorithms for meteorological models. So it was natural for us. And the other thing, too, was that we, we did some, have some experience with RAND's codes, uh, Reynolds averaged Navier's codes. But I found RAND's codes to be so uninteresting. Okay. So, for example... <laughs> When, when we do a fire simulation and you see the buoyant plume and you see the smoke behaving the way smoke really behaves, and if you've had experience working in a lab as I have had, it gives me great satisfaction to see on the computer screen exactly what I see in the laboratory, or at least something fairly close to it. Mm-hmm. But when run a, a RANS model, I mean, you may get a reasonable result or answer, but I just find it to be so unsatisfying to see that, you know, time average portrayal of the of the smoke movement and so for me it was just more of academic interest we weren't at that time when we chose LES we were thinking that this was just going to be an academic exercise we didn't realize that people were going to actually find shopping malls okay we thought we were just gonna run calculations go to meetings you know live the academic life um and it wasn't until you know, around the year 2000 or approaching the year 2000, I started to give the code out just to some, you know, friends in the area who wanted to play around with it. And I was startled when they came back with these, you know, fairly sophisticated renditions of buildings. Some of these buildings were in the Washington, D.C. area. And I thought, wow, I mean, this is fantastic. And I found that the engineers who were doing these calculations, they really enjoyed it. I mean, almost like a little kid playing with Lego blocks. I mean, we all enjoy that. We still do. Building up, you know, complicated geometries and then looking at the smoke mm. move through it. I just found it was interesting. And I think that the engineers who were doing the work also found it interesting. So don't discount that, you know, work should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's, it's, it's somewhat difficult to say that, you know, fire is not always fun. Sometimes fire is not very fun, but... You know, setting up these calculations, it's challenging, it's fun, it's rewarding. And I think that, you know, I was having a good time. And I think that the engineers mm-hmm. who were using the model were having a good time. I thought, you know, if they were interested in it and they put that extra bit of effort into doing these calculations, why not? Uh, well, I mean, that will advance the field. I've read in one of your papers or maybe in an interview with you that chose less because it was interesting. So again, <laughs> this one is, <laughs> this one is, is, is confirmed. It's like myth, right. it's like mythbusters in here. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, I could spend an hour arguing as to why LES is technically superior and we can go into turbulence models and closure methods and all of that. But 
you know, for me, at the end of the day, I just was much more satisfied running these, yeah. you know, realistic looking fire simulations. And then when we, you know, when we discovered that we could actually do these calculations on desktop personal computers, I mean, that was a win-win. We said, all right, you know, if we can do LAS on our manageable platform, why not do LAS? I find it also fascinating that you've built this as a tool for science, not imagining the um, impact it would have over the engineering discipline that you were discovering that as the tool was, was given, that that must have been very rewarding to see how creatively people use it. Maybe some days even too creatively, <laughs> but okay. we'll reach that point for sure. Right. But again, that's part of the fun because you develop a technology and then you see that technology grow in ways you never imagined. I mean, that could be said of so many things that have happened in the past 30 years with the boom in computing or information technology. I mean, a lot of the things that we take for granted were developed just out of the blue and the developers themselves never had a clue that <laughs> it would take off the way it did. So, so if, if we think FDS version one, what was it like compared to the modern FDS? Like what, what are the things that we would take for granted that they were not even uh, in, in inception at that point? Like, how, how, did, how did it look? <laughs> did it, had heat transferred to the surfaces? Uh, it really didn't. So it, one of the things that FDS-1 lacked was radiation. Okay. We had a very, very crude rendition of radiation and where we, we literally assumed that the fireworks were just a bunch of burning, like little particles, little burning ping pong balls. And each ping pong ball would radiate a certain amount of energy in all directions. And we just used a, like a simple Monte Carlo type algorithm that just randomly shot the energy out in different directions. And about that time when we were developing FDS-1, Simo Hostika from Finland came to visit us for a year. And I remember when I, I first met him and he said, you got to put in a new radiation solver. This one you have is terrible. <laughs> so I said, okay, Simo, if you think it's so terrible, then you, you can have put it. Put a new one in it. And I'll tell you, within a month, he had essentially what, is still in the code today. I mean, he, he developed something within a month wow. um, that is still a workhorse. And quite frankly, we've never really improved on it. It's, it's that good. Yeah. And that's where FDS-1 went to FDS-2 and so forth. Okay, uh, and next combustion model. Like, did it have combustion yeah. at the beginning or also you used some clever approximations? No, it didn't really have combustion. All it, all it had were, again, these ping pong balls. Okay. In each ping pong ball, you could think of as representing a certain amount of fuel and the energy would be deposited on, onto the grid in a certain amount of time. So in some sense, the, the most basic type of, you know, Lagrangian model where we just, we had a, a, a burnout time for these particles that was just fixed. So it wasn't tied to any turbulence or anything else. Mm. It just wants the ping pong ball and in half a second, say, um, its energy is deposited onto the grid. Okay. And we adjusted that burning time based on the flame height. So if the fire was too short, then we just extended okay. <laughs> to a little taller. So there really was no combustion at all. It was just really a way to, to deposit a fixed amount of energy onto the grid. But I mean, it's, it's almost like what you, what you do now. Sometimes you have these volumetric heat sources where the fire is really just like a cone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you deposit the energy in a, like a conical shape yep. on your grid. It was about that level of complexity. So at that point, 
it was mostly the, the flow solver. So you, you had the flow, you had the turbulent flow with LES. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you have created this ping pong, ping pong balls to basically release the energy to capture the, the buoyant flows and, yes. and smoke. Mm-hmm. And you just used the, the mixture fraction model. How- that, didn't, that, that came later. Okay. In FPS 1, there was no mixture fraction. Okay. We just used these ping pong balls to visualize the smoke. And so also that's when Smoke View was born. Okay. Smoke View was originally just a simple visualization tool that allowed us to visualize the particles. Okay. So the particles were colored orange when they were burning, and they were colored black when they weren't. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so you have the fire, and then you have the smoke. And that was the original Smoke View. And then Glenn Forney, who, who developed it, um, you know, as time went on, he, he started studying all sorts of other techniques to visualize the smoke. I mean, a lot of his inspiration comes from the movies. Okay. So he reads, he reads a lot of books about how computer graphics are used in, in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And so some of what you see in Smoke View now are simple renditions of what the Pixar people are doing. You have, I must say, fairly advanced camera operations within Smoke View that is misaligned with the, with the needs, I guess, uh, that explains why. If, yeah. if someone with, uh, with love to film industry made it, that it makes actually sense. <laughs> and also not no heat transfer. Okay, you didn't have heat transfer to solids. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so you had the solver. How did you choose, like, okay, now, now let's add the heat transfer. Now let's add the combustion. Was it because of certain cases or was there, um, like, a grand plan for the next yeah. uh, 10 years? Uh, no, there's no, I'd, I'd like, I'd love to think that there was a grand plan, but it usually came case by case. Mm-hmm. And so the heat transfer came about because, you know, our, you know, our original problem were these rack storage fires, right? So you've got boxes piled up in a warehouse and we would start the fire at the base of the boxes. And obviously we needed to heat up the surfaces of those boxes until we got to some, you know, quote unquote ignition temperature. And then the boxes would start burning. So in order to do this sort of simple fire spread, we had to have, you know, a relatively simple, you know, heat transfer algorithm into the box. And combustion? Like when did you figure out, okay, I, I want to see the flames. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so combustion came about, like in FDS2, I started working with Jason Floyd. So Jason Floyd was my postdoc. And he had graduated from the University of Maryland, you know, with a PhD in I think it's nuclear engineering, but he's a clever guy and he, he figured out how fire works. And he was doing work as a postdoc to get underventilated fires. Mm-hmm. And so we knew that in order to do underventilated fires, we couldn't just continue, you know, with this burning ping pong ball idea. That wasn't ever do it. <laughs> so, so Jason and I developed the, you know, the mixture fraction approach and a sort of a first way to look at combustion more realistically, and also to look at combustion in an underventilated environment. Now, we, we had to then, you know, evolve beyond the mixture fraction approach to what we do today, which is where we have these so-called lumped species, you know, fuel, pus, air, most of products. But FDS2 sort of introduced the concept of the mixture fraction. And then, you know, Jason's been working with us ever since. And, you know, over time, he has evolved the combustion model to what it is today. And J- Jason's a star. He, he was also at the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I listened to his podcast. All the best to Jason. 
<laughs> so, okay, now you have mixture fraction approach and capability to do underventilated fires. I think now, at this point, FDS gains capabilities that highly go above what we could do as uh, as a fire modelers, like balances of heat, uh, small compartment fires, stuff like that you could do with CFAS. But once you solve oxygen and you know how much oxygen is in your room, you know how much right. is in next to your doors and how much is in the back of the room, you right. create very like non-uniform environment in your compartment. Right, it, yes. And this is when you start to see inside the fire like no one ever uh, done. So, so, so when did you start like doing, I don't know, backdrafts or, or smoke explosions with it? I guess, I guess you, you probably immediately went for that when you gained these capabilities. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we were, again, Jason was doing his postdoc uh, research down at Virginia Tech, and he was working with another fellow named Chris Wazorek, who's now at Factory mm-hmm. Mutual. And they were, you know, they had a, a reduced scale enclosure, and they were putting big fires <laughs> in the reduced scale enclosure. and measuring uh, certain CO and, and other mm-hmm. gases within blocks. And so we were trying to model that. And our, you know, our big goal was to try to predict the CO that would build up in the upper layer of this flashed over compartment. You know, that kept pushing the combustion modeling because if you want to actually predict CO as opposed to just specifying mm-hmm. it, you know, then you've got to now have something a little bit more sophisticated than fuel plus oxygen goes to products. Now we have to have Something like fuel plus oxygen goes to, you know, some initial set of products. And then those initial set of products have to then combine with oxygen and, and to form the final set of products. That is, the CO mm-hmm. has to oxidize and form CO2. And that's where the Lubbock species approach um, came into play because we needed some way to account for all of these major and minor species without breaking the budget. Because in FDS, if you track all of these different species, fuel, oxygen, nitrogen, soot, CO, mm-hmm. CO2, water vapor, blah, 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 blah. You know, each of these is all transport equation and the cost of the calculations would get higher and higher and higher. So Jason was really the, the one who worked out, you know, the simplification of, of the kinetics to the point where you would have the minimum number of species that you would need to track. But once you get into underventilated combustion, you form CO and that sort of thing, you know, basically now you have four species to track rather than three, right? You've got these two sets of, of products. The initial set, you know, has the CO in it, and then the, uh, the secondary set has the CO2. And by like developing, you mean like literally solving the equations on, on the Blackboard, then figuring out how to transfer that into a code? Like, how, how did you even write it? Well, well, Jason's very good with algebra. (laughs) (laughs) And you're a mathematician. (laughs) I'm supposed to be the mathematician, but Jason actually is is really clever. And and what this involves is you you write down your basic equations where you have, okay, the fuel molecule plus oxygen plus nitrogen goes to X, Y, and Z. Well, now you have to lump these things together. And there's just a a lot of algebra. And then when you start to code it up, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, all the all the atoms balance, um, and, and probably heard from people who try to run FDS in sort of primitive species mode that it's tricky. Mm. Just mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, you know, what are my stoichiometric coefficients for this, you know, complicated set of set of equations? 
I, I find it fascinating, you know, because I, I really like to put it in the um, timeline, you know. That was time when people listened to Britney Spears and Ensign, I guess. This is this is times where you you surely could not go stack overflow and just okay, give me like nice solution for this particular problem. You have to figure it out. You didn't yeah, well, you didn't have YouTube yeah, tutorials of, <laughs> because there was no YouTube. Yeah, I, I think the problem was is that a lot of I mean, there's certainly a lot of people doing CFD related to combustion. Yeah. But a lot of them are doing these fundamental calculations where they don't have these lump species. They just literally, you know, track all of the major and minor mm -hmm. species directly. And it's computationally expensive, yeah. but it's a little bit easier in terms of the formulation. Mm -hmm. So for us, often the difficulty in programming FDS is we have to make these approximations to get things to work in a reasonable amount of time. Whereas sometimes someone, we, we just talk to combustion people, they'll say, well, why don't you just solve for everything explicitly and don't worry about the lump species? And we say, well, you know, we have to get our calculations done in a day or two, not a week or two or a month or two. Sometimes in the academic world, if, it, if your calculation takes a month it's, to finish, well, so what? And what, what came next? Pyrolysis, suppression? Um, let's see. So pyrolysis came about, I'd say, next because, again, Simo Hostica, um, who had returned to Finland at that point, was starting to get interested in pyrolysis and wood, wood in particular. I think in Finland, they, <laughs> they're very yeah. interested in wood. It's an important part of their economy. And so he started to put the basic pyrolysis equations into FDS. And I also became quite interested in it. So he and I both started to, to work out the detailed kinetics models that one can choose to use in FDS today. But it was, it was Simo who really who really pioneered that. And he was then just interested in doing um, simulations involving wood. He, and he had a number of, of co-workers. Anna Matawa was one who I remember, and she was also very interested in this. So I decided as long as Simo was interested in coding it up, I was more than happy to work with him. Fantastic. And and suppression, how, how did you end up putting Lagrangian particles, water, and... Uh... And all the suppression stuff in it. Well, all the suppression stuff was around from the very beginning, even oh. before we released FDS. We were doing these warehouse fires. So we had, okay. we had the sprinkler model in place. But one of the things that we, we really wanted to do after we released FDS officially is we wanted to do more with droplet sizes and distribution and, and that sort of thing. And there's a fellow named Dave Shepard who, for his graduate work, developed a fairly sophisticated treatment of water droplets that we built into FDS. The problem there, though, is that for any given sprinkler, it's very difficult to get the data that we would need for this sophisticated model. So, I mean, if you just go into any building and look up and look at the sprinkler, there are, you know, an infinite number of different types of sprinklers. Each one has its own sort of characteristic spray pattern and, and droplet distribution size. And so we got to a point where we had to kind of keep in place the relatively simple model that we still use today, simply because we don't have the details of any given sprinkler. I know it can be measured. I mean, one can go to a testing mm -hmm. lab and measure these things, but that's a very expensive thing to do. And I've, I've found by talking to a lot of the fire protection engineers who use FDS, they're quite happy to 
have FDS predict when the sprinklers are going to activate, and they want to have a, a reasonable idea of where the water go. But in terms of suppression, in terms of actually predicting if, you know, a pile of commodity that's burning is going to go out, that's still something that I don't think we can, we can predict. Yeah. I mean, we have rough empirical models in FDS to make some approximation as to how much the heat release rate will decrease when you throw water on something. But that's never really been something that we're going to be able to do like reliably. Like we'll never be able to replace full-scale test in terms of predicting whether or not, you know, that burning pile of boxes is going to be put out by Brinkler X, Y, or Z. Now I, I'm, I'm switching to the difficult questions part of the list. Yeah. So I remember there was a thing around FDS4 it was the material database. And then when, yeah. when you move to FTS5, the material database has disappeared, uh, causing, <laughs> uh, causing almost a collapse to a whole industry of fire safety uh, engineering. <laughs> so I would love to ask you, like, uh, first uh, about the development and uh, the destruction of the material database <laughs> and the role of default values in, in modeling, because the, right. these, these two things connect. Right. The original idea behind that database was just to put in, you know, some K row C for some basic materials, yeah. rib, gypsum board. But over time, it started to creep and we, we started to develop much more sophisticated property data that we put into that database. And then we just started adding numbers that, you know, came out of this paper or that paper or this handbook or, or wherever, the database started getting filled up with a lot of numbers that we really couldn't validate or verify. Mm -hmm. And at this time, we were doing more and more work with regulatory authorities, like in this country, the Nuclear Regulatory mm -hmm. Commission. And they were all very interested in validating these models mm -hmm. because, I mean, they're essentially the authorities having jurisdiction and they want to have some idea as to how accurate these models are. And question arose when we were starting to do the validation work is, okay, well, what do we do about these material properties? How do we quote unquote validate them? And I looked through the database and I found that, you know, I really couldn't rigorously justify some of these numbers. I mean, some of them were just, you know, ballpark, order of magnitude guesses. Some of them, we, we started to notice that they were being used inappropriately. And, and cited, we, they, they, they were cited like to your... We're being cited yeah. as sort of standard reference materials. And that's a problem here at NIST because we do have, as an agency, we have what are known as standard reference materials and standard reference data. Okay. And our material database was not that. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's a big deal when you, mm -hmm. when you stamp, you know, standard reference data onto something. I mean, the funniest thing that we, we, we sell peanut butter here. Did you ever hear that story <laughs> about peanut butter? <laughs> no, no, give me it. I want it. <laughs> so NIST, you can buy for about $500 a jar peanut butter from NIST. Okay. And it's a standard reference material. It's used by food producers for measuring caloric content. So if you have an apparatus for measuring the caloric content of food, you can use the NIST peanut butter as a standard to make sure that your apparatus for measuring the calorie content of the food is okay. So the long, so the long story short is we were not going through all of the necessary hoops to call 
our database mm. of standard reference. So when we went to FDF5, we just decided that this was too much of a burden mm. for us to take on. It's hard enough to maintain the code. We really weren't comfortable maintaining this database of material properties, especially when we were just pulling these, these numbers from just a whole variety of different sources. It's almost like, you know, going on to the web these days and just Google searching on something yeah. and put the number. I mean, that's really all our database was. And so I'd rather have the end user pick a number off the web. <laughs> and justify it, yeah. Justify it. And that's, and that's what the authority said to us. They said, look, when someone runs an FDS calculation and we review it, we will ask them where they came up with all these properties. And we don't want to hear from them that it just comes from the NIST database. Okay. I agree. I don't want to hear that either. Said question. Does it taste good? Like, is, is it better? <laughs> it tastes <laughs> no, it's terrible. <laughs> well, because it doesn't have it doesn't have the sugar. It doesn't have. <laughs> it's just like peanuts and oil. It's okay. Terrible. Okay. As as we discussed this this material database, I had this discussion with Wolfram Jan a long long time ago in the podcast about um, users using default values without giving without giving it a serious thought. And uh, you, you, you had to use some defaults in, in FTS. Yep. There's, there's yep. many defaults. There's, uh, smoke extinction, specific smoke extinction coefficient default. There's right. a sutil default. I think there, no, now you have to specify your reaction because you, right. you, you have taken away that from us. Yeah. We even, <laughs> we even took that away because that was problematic too. Yeah. We didn't. We don't know the smoke yield of your burning couch. I mean, that's something. Yeah, I, I actually, 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 that's a, that's a great example because half of the world was burning polyurethane because that was the default reaction. I forget what the default. Re I think the default no, reaction was, was propane. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, propane. But that was like. So but there were there was polyurethane in this database that we had just pieced together from some experiments that were done here at hey. NIST, and I can't even tell you, you know, in detail what that polyurethane consisted of, what kind of fabric was in it. It was just like a one-off from one test. And we just were not comfortable clearing that to be standard reference data. But, but now, okay, now there are still some defaults. I guess they are like, you, you probably put a lot more attention into into having them. But what, what how do you feel about this uh, user responsibility? Like from, from a developer perspective, uh -huh. I guess from your point of view, oh. like the, the user is fully uh, responsible for, for choosing the numbers, whether they, they leave default or, or pick one. Do, you, do right. you have the impression right. that they actually do that? Well, we, they have to, because yeah. we forced them. <laughs> for example, I was talking to someone the other day who was doing an analysis of a fire in, in some building, and he kept talking about the, the visibility. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I said, well, what have you specified for the soot yield? Mm -hmm. And he didn't know what he was specifying for the soot yield. And I'm guessing if he didn't specify anything, then there's no soot at all, which means that the visibility is always going to be, you know, at its maximum. Mm -hmm. And so, so we decided that it was much better to sort of force the user to think about these things rather than to specify it. Because, I mean, let's face it, when I run a computer program, and I'm not talking about FDFs, but some other, you know, program, I generally go with the default. Yeah. If I don't know any better, I'm just going to go with the default unless The program forces me to make a decision. Okay. And so we, we often argue amongst ourselves, to what extent do we want to force the users to make these decisions or do we want to provide them with a default? And over the years, we've kind of come to this compromise. 
Like, for example, 35% is our default radius of fraction. But that's, I mean, I'm trying to think what other, what other defaults do we have in there that user doesn't have to really specify. Uh, spe- spe- specific mass extinction coefficient is, is like 8,700. That's, that, right. that's, that's number yeah. from Mulholland's yeah. research that, that no one touches, right. right? And that's a number that, I mean, we haven't seen anything better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we're, let's at least provide the best data that's out there. And, but then for, for other things like soot yield, CO yield, you know, those are things that we really think the user has to think about. Yeah. Especially if they're doing a life safety simulation. So we've covered, I, I hope, quite thoroughly the, the first 10 years of FDS. FDS 5 came, what, 2008, 9? So, so, something, something like, like that, that, right? Yeah. Then FDS yeah. 6 came 2013, 14. Also uh, around that time. Uh, yes. I, I guess some people were lucky to get into beta version for that was quite a long one as well. Um, right, right. So how did the development of the modern versions look like? Because you had now a combustion model, you had a radiation model, you had pyrolysis model, you had the pressure model. At yep. this point, was it like improving the models, making a big changes? So as we went from FDS 5 to FDS 6, we were joined by Randy McDermott. Okay. And he, you know, he actually has a formal CFD background. Okay. You know, Jason Simo and I kind of learned it. <laughs> Along, Randy actually had a very extensive background in CFD. Um, you know, one of the things we asked him to do when he first came on board was just to like look at everything in the code and start running, you know, verification tests. And we started running more validation tests. And we started to get a little bit more strict with the way we handled a lot of things. I mean, it's hard to go, I mean, there'd be a laundry list of different things. Mm-hmm. But, but Randy started to really apply a lot more rigor to what we were doing up to that point. Up to that point, you know, sometimes we were, we were being a little bit fast and loose with some of the turbulence model boundary layer correlations. Mm-hmm. And, and Randy brought some discipline to that and introduced the, the whole concept of running verification case. Okay. And so that's a lot of that went into FDS 6. You know, one of the major problems that we had with FDS-5 is that the algorithm at the time that we were using, which was the simplest form of, of the transport algorithm, would allow temperatures to drop down to extremely low values right around the fire. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to make a long story short, you have a situation where you go from like a really high temperature in the fire and then in just one or two grid cells, you're down to ambient temperature. Mm-hmm. So the temperature kind of goes through this dip. It's purely numerical. There's nothing physical about this at all. It's just that it's a numerical artifact. It's just part of that particular algorithm that we were using. But it really, you know, got a lot of people bent out of shape. A lot of our users did not like to see, you know, minus 10 degrees Celsius right next to a big fire. And we tried to explain that this was, you know, purely a numerical artifact. It doesn't affect the overall accuracy of the calculation, but still, you know, it was a, it was a thorn in our side. And so we said to Randy, I said, Randy, what can we do about this? And he knew of more sophisticated transport algorithms that would eliminate this spurious low temperature. So those are the, those are the kinds of things that, that Randy brought to the table. A lot of it is under the hood. You don't notice a lot of this stuff, but it was absolutely necessary in order for us to continue because as we start using, you know, near flame temperatures for 
extinction and suppression and those sorts of things. You know, if you have these fictitious values, you can't do anything. So we really needed to tighten up the basic algorithm before we could move on to two other things. So, so we needed someone, we needed like a, a, a real CFD. You, you needed Randy. <laughs> it's glad you got him. Just have a new CFD. Fantastic. <laughs> I remember from those times, a lot of discussion on jet fans and how the core is solved. I think you went to like two or three iterations of the LES model at the time. Yes. There was this yeah. case of having to put a pressure inlet every mesh to keep the background pressure. I mean, yeah. of course, things, but... Well, another thing that Randy did is that he coded up into FDS all of the like most popular turbulence models. Mm -hmm. So when we say LES, there are about half a dozen different ways of representing the viscosity of the gas. Right? You've heard like Smagorinsky, mm -hmm. that's one type and then there's a there are a variety of others and randy coded up every single one and then we ran all of our test cases with all of these different turbulence models and the one that we came to which is known as the deerdorfs model the one we're using now simply because over the wide range of our applications this one performed the best fantastic and, and now yeah. having this massive uh library of of reference cases You, yes. you are in such a better position to understand any change to the code you do. Yes. Because from yes. what I understood, every night you run the simulations again and again and again to see for, right. for, for errors, right? Right, right. We also, we run these validation cases. So if, if we introduce some new variant of, a, of our extinction model, we can run half a dozen different test series and see, okay, are, is, are we improving or are we getting worse? That's, uh, and we could do that literally within a few days. Whereas before, something like this would be, you know, something a graduate student would spend two years doing. Now we can do it in a couple of days just because we have all of this stuff at the push of a button. So we, we just simply make the change in the tenth version of the code. We push the button. A couple of days later, we look at the results and we can tell whether or not, you know, things are getting better or things are getting worse. How, how big is the team nowadays? So... The core people, it's basically myself, Jason Floyd, Randy McDermott, a fellow named Marcus Venayer, who's, who's working on the non-rectangular geometry, mm -hmm. Simo Hostica and his students uh, help out. Um, Glenn Forty is doing smoke view across a lot of the, um, the IT support. And then we have, we have various other people, um, Susan Tillian from Germany, for example, you know, sometimes works on the pressure solving features. But the day-to-day -day maintenance is myself, Jason Floyd, Randy, and Marcos. We're the ones, when you, when you turn in an issue tracker, it's going to be one of us who takes it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Such a big, how to even say it? I mean, uh, this, is, this is not important for fire science. This is fundamental for fire science. You know, this, if tomorrow FDS disappeared... It would be like a stock market crash in the world of fire science and engineering. So, yeah. Well, we, one of the reasons why we've put together this kind of elaborate set of online tools like, you know, the GitHub is that if we were all hit by a bus tomorrow, mm -hmm. someone could step in and, and take over. I mean, that's the beauty of open source software. Mm -hmm. I mean, we do the day-to-day -day maintenance, but there are others who are kind of following us in a way mm -hmm. who, if we went away, they could step in and, and take it over. So we want to make sure that this thing lasts longer than just that. I think the, and I think the impact uh, of the tool is tremendous. 
Okay, Kevin, that that was fascinating to go uh, through the development of FDS. I, I think you've cleared a lot ideas about the origins and and uh, the solver and how it was built. It's, it's a fantastic so- story. I was told it's a good story and it, and it truly is. So um, yeah, thank you very much for coming to the show and and even more, thank you very much for uh, building this for us. I enjoyed it. And that's it. Oh man, so good. It was on the podcast bucket list to, to have Kevin talk about FDS on, on the air. And it finally happened and I'm super happy to have conducted this interview. So many golden nuggets from the early days of FDS development. So many interesting insights, how the model grew, what powered this growth and how it changed over the years. The most astonishing part, I think, is uh, how it was built as an academic tool. And then it quickly was rediscovered as a commercial powerhouse. Now it's fueling so many companies around the world. So many people are basically FTS engineers nowadays. And, and that's great. That's great that the tool uh, developed by scientists powered by fire science has found a way to fire engineering. What a better testament for fire science and the need of development of, of fundamental stuff in this field. What's a better example of how great investment fundamental fire science can be? If you really enjoyed this episode and you would love to hear Kevin once again, uh, I have good news for you. So there's not only a Christmas special episode, but there's also, let's say, New Year's special episode coming your way next Wednesday. And that's uh, Kevin McGrattan again. And we're going to talk about experiment that has certainly changed the fire science. And this experiment was the investigation after the World Trade Center collapse, which is also heavily tied into the development of FDS and uh, how the software had to be changed to uh, make this investigation a possibility. So I hope you will enjoy it as much as, as this episode. And for now, thank you very much for being here with me. Thank you for sharing your listener experience with me. I've received so much feedback through the listener experience survey. Uh, I'm very, very happy with that and very glad you, you did share that with me. I'm going to dedicate a half of the Q&A episode in early January, answering some of the stuff. I cannot just reply you with an email because it was kind of anonymous. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to reflect on what uh, feedback I've received in the Q&A. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with it. What's the outcome of this survey and uh, what I have processed out of that. One of the feedback was to make this outros shorter. I seem to just fail incorporating that one, but uh, I'll improve. I'll I'll make this uh, thing more concise in the future. Anyway, thank you very much for being here with me. Christmas coming soon. So if you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas to you and your family. I hope you have a lovely time. If you don't celebrate Christmas, just have a great time around there. And uh, I hope you find some joy and calmness and escape from the mad world that surrounds us in this uh, special time. This year, not taking any Christmas break. I have a podcast prepared all the way into the new year. So next Wednesday, I see you here again. Thank you. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.